You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello, everyone. It's Noah Rosenfarb here today with a great guest in Dr. Thomas Deans, the author of Every Family's Business and Willing Wisdom, uh, an award-winning speaker, someone that has not only uh, great stories to share from the families he's interacted with, but also a depth of personal experience in family business. So I'm real excited to have you on today. Thank you for joining us. Noah, the pleasure is mine. I hope your audience finds this interesting. Yeah, I'm sure they will. So uh, maybe you could start by you know, talking to me about your experience in a family business. What, what, did, what did that look like? How was it shaped? I know from reading about you, there were three generations uh, of your family that had sold their business. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, that, that's right, Noah. In fact, you know, I was born into a family business, as was my father, as was my grandfather. We're, we're a multi-generational um, uh, family of business founders, and that's kind of interesting because in the family business space, most people define themselves as second, third, fourth, or fifth generation businesses. Our experience is, is actually quite the opposite. In fact, that's really the genesis of the book. I um, I joined my father's business at the tender age of 37, quite late in the world of family businesses, where most children will often, uh, you know, go to uh, go to college. They'll, they may spend one or two or three years outside the family business and then join the family business in their mid or late 20s, and and then trundle along for you know a 25, 30 year career. In our uh, in my particular uh, circumstance, I joined quite quite late. I was the CEO of our uh, family business. It was, a, it was a manufacturing company. We had plants in Canada and the United States, sales offices around the world. And I was CEO for eight years. Joined in 1999 and then sold that business along with my father's interests in, uh, in 2007. And, uh, and then I stayed uh, six months working for the new owners. In fact, I like to tell my audiences when I'm giving the speech that I served a six-month sentence for a crime I didn't commit. It was, a, it was a brutal experience, as it is for many business owners. And in fact, uh, it occurred to me it's, it's probably one of the major reasons why business owners don't get on with the business of prepping their, their business for sale and pulling the trigger and actually exiting. And um, so having worked for six months uh, with the new owners, uh, we both decided it was probably best that um, I go home. Uh, you know, business um, families, um, presidents, owners, we're terrible at taking direction. Uh, entrepreneurs have their own ideas. So when someone buys your business and you're now no longer the number one, you're this kind of two with an asterisk mark uh, beside your name, 
it's a uh, it's a really it's a really tricky and uh, and uh, for many people awkward uh, arrangement. So six months was as long as I could handle. They can handle. I went home. I spent two weeks golfing. That was really boring, and uh, sat down and found myself one morning uh, pecking away at my laptop. And uh, 15 hours later, I had, I had penned uh, 15,000 words of uh, what became Every Family's Business, which has gone on to sell over 300,000 copies and become the best-selling family business book of all time. And no one is more surprised than my English professor in in college. Uh, in fact, he's probably rolling over in his grave because I am quite frankly not a writer. I uh, but I did have a message, and my editor, who uh, who took the manuscript, looked at it and said, "This is appalling. You, you can't write." But there is something about this message that strikes me as different. And we stuck at this thing. We I wrote the the first draft in 30 days. My editor had it for 30 days. The printer had it for 30 days. And and then um, there it was. Uh, 100, about 120 days later, the truck was backing up and dropped off this stack of books, uh, self-published, and I thought, wow, I, um, no, I don't know if you know what 5,000 copies of a book looks like in a garage, but I got to tell you, it's um, it's not pretty. And, uh, I cracked open the first case, I uh, grabbed five copies, I, I took it over to my parents' place, sold them the copies, no discounts for family, right, and uh, came back and I still stared at, a, at just an enormous pile of books and I thought, this is, this is insane, what have, what have I done? And um, and then proceeded to give uh, a whole bunch of free talks. There wasn't a Rotary Club, an Elks Club, an Optimist Club, a Service Club anywhere on the planet that was safe uh, for me. I'd speak anywhere, anytime for free and did that for about a year and uh, really honed the message. And then one day... There was an audience, uh, in my audience rather, there was a lawyer, and he said, that was a very disturbing message that you just shared. Uh, I, it's so disturbing and different. I, I'm wondering, what do you charge for your speaking? And I, you know, at that point, I'd always spoken pro bono, and uh, I said, well, why don't you just buy a copy of my book for every one of your clients, and I'll speak. I'll speak for free. And I, and I did that, and there was 150 um, uh, business owners in the room, and I delivered my talk, and and what I didn't know was that I tripped over. I stumbled into a business model that would then uh, I would then go on and give 500 paid speeches in 14 countries, delivering this really different message to business owners. And um, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about that because that's really what I think your your audience is interested. What makes the every family's business message so profoundly different than the traditional literature that speaks to the business owner who has created a business? created value, but is feeling really stuck and um, confused as to how they're going to monetize their life's work. Yeah. So obviously, I'd like you to share that with us and also um, some of the questions that you've uh, formulated as a way to develop your own thesis around your family business. But before we get there, tell me about your own personal exit. And, you know, coming from a family of entrepreneurs and not only entrepreneurs, as you described it, basically every generation being a first generation entrepreneur in in creating their own business, creating their own success. How, How did you exit? Was that a planned exit over time? Do you think you did an effective job? And what was your learning experience that came out of that experience? Well, I'll tell you the big, uh, the, the big lesson learned for me was I was actually purchasing my father's business, and I, and I was doing that using traditional uh, lending. And, um, and in fact, what makes our family a little bit interesting is I was actually purchasing shares in the business uh, prior to joining as an employee. And in fact, after buying shares for a number of years, uh, my father then put me on the board of directors. 
and then he hired me. So think about it. Now, in our family, we do absolutely everything backward according to the literature. I was a shareholder first, a director second, and an employee third. Hmm. That is very uh, untypical of, of a family business where employment is typically the first step. But I think what, what I think we're acutely aware of in our family narrative, looking back over generations, is that we've, we've never confused the income that we generate from our employment uh, with the equity that we build in these businesses. And in family businesses, um, that is probably the one area that gets muddled up the most. In other words, children often will work in their parents' businesses and and they will be underpaid, all right? The mythology is that every kid who works in their parents' business is overpaid. Well, I, I'll tell you, I've met more underpaid uh, second generations working in their parents' businesses. And the proposition is, this is what they hear from their parents, don't worry about your compensation because one day all this will be yours. Well, uh, you know, that one day can be a really long time away. And there is a lot of frustrated, uh, you know, second gens working for below the value that they're creating, and it creates a lot of a lot of resentment, a lot of tension in the family and in the business. So I, I just never had to deal with that. I was always paid commensurate for what a president should be paid for the number of employees and locations that we had. So we used third-party salary surveys to generate, um, you know, a, a number that was defensible uh, to our lenders and to our employees. And um, and so I, I, I had a huge head start um, when I joined this business because of the family culture and the way that we approach these family businesses. These these businesses are not our legacies. So you know, and you you know, in your question, you you articulated exactly what we've done: five generations of founders, operators, and sellers. We we involve our children in our business. We just don't gift our business to our kids. If they don't want to buy it, then we sell them and we pass wealth to the next generation. So um, we really give, we really work on trying to give our children the space to be the, the people that they're meant to be. So it's highly unlikely. We've got a, you know, we've got a, a significant uh, shoe manufacturing company headquartered here in Canada, and uh, and you know, even the unborn uh, children in that family are destined to be shoemakers. They've been at it so long that they that they believe that this is all that they will ever be. And you know, it's a it's a story and a narrative that I'm trying to change. I'm trying to give families a perspective that they can be so much more or something completely different than their parents. It's a refreshing and new perspective uh, and one that gets business owners out of a real pickle, and that is I've invited my kids into the business. Now, how the hell do I sell a business that my children are deriving a living from? The book and the questions that you've alluded to that are in the in the book, Every Family's Business, that's what it does. It, it, it helps the family find their exit in a way that pays homage to the relationships and to the importance of protecting the equity, the retained earnings in that business. So would you say the core message of the book is, is as you've described so far, that you know the, the equity in one's family-owned business doesn't have to be passed as equity. It could be passed as as liquid wealth, and you know, don't don't be married to the idea that the business is right for everyone in your family. Well, that's exactly it. So, in other words, if if your kids don't want to risk capital to buy the business, heads up, business owners, your kids don't love the business. Kids who are willing to risk something of themselves, not just their wealth, but their energy, their ideas, their creativity, their their best earning years, if they're not willing to risk those things, they just don't 
love the business. Now, the paradox is that this is incredibly powerful and important information for the business founder to collect. If if he's asking, he or she is asking their kids whether or not they want to buy the business, and the kids say, you know, uh, like our jobs, like the pay, but don't like the risk. We don't want this business. That is really important information. If the business owner then turns to, say, a group of senior managers and says, you know, do you do you want to buy the business? And the senior managers say, no. And then he goes, well, you know, I'm kind of left with um, competitors, strategic buyers, and there's not much interest there. And then he turns to a private equity firm and says, you know, do you guys want to buy the business? And they say no. Where do you think, Noah, that business is in its life cycle? It's going down the drain there. It's, it's past its freshness date. Yeah. The whole point about exit planning, succession planning, transition planning, whatever you want to call it, selling your business, is that it's estate planning. Everyone has described it, that process as something that you do uh, kind of five minutes before you want to exit. And the reality is that it's something that has to be done as part of the operations of the business. From the very first day you incorporate, the very best business minds um, incorporate their exit into every single decision that they make. So it's not one hour of time spent on estate planning or preparing my business for sale. is an hour that I'm not going to spend in my business creating wealth, increasing sales, improving operations. It's not one robbing from the other. It's the same thing. In fact, I would go further and say that the the business owner that spends an hour on their exit plan will run vastly more profitable businesses today because they know what buyers want. So they run very different businesses. Vastly different businesses. When I um, you know, am approached by business owners looking for my advice and counseling them through an exit. <clears throat> what I often say is that it's the best ROI you could get on anything. If you if you plan an exit in advance and you take the time to understand who your buyers might be and what they'd be looking for, and and then you know, typically it's going to result in a change in the profitability of your company while you continue to own it. But then you're going to get a multiple of that profit on an exit. There's really nothing that I think compares in terms of where owners can spend their time and reap a reward in terms of value. Well, you don't know, there's a small, uh, very, very short story that I can share to, to illustrate that point. About, uh, about six months prior to us finalizing the sale of our business, I was traveling with one of our best salesmen through the great state of Missouri, and we stopped at a Starbucks, and I ordered a small, dark, gross coffee, and it was like a buck seventy-five, maybe two bucks. And my sales guy orders a Grande Supremo. This thing came, it had fruit and whipped cream. The thing was like eight bucks. And I knew, because we were in the middle of our negotiations, that we were shooting for a 10-multiple EBITDA. And you know what I tell my audiences? You know what I was watching that guy do, my sales guy do? I was watching him eat a, a drink an $80 cup of coffee. Because that's what that coffee was going to yank out of my wallet when we sold out a 10-multiple. Now, I tell business owners, think about your, your, your entire operation. Think of maintenance costs, all the different things that you would do knowing that it's not a dollar saved, it's 10. I tell you, business owners will think and look at their business and their ex- on the expense side in a profoundly different way. Yeah, that's for sure. 
So take me back to Every Family's Business and, and the message that you've created and the talks that you've given. What would you say are the, the key points that you'd like our audience to take away and maybe influence them to go onto your website, uh, everyfamiliesbusiness.com, and, and buy your book? Well, I think let's start with the first book, which was Every Family's Business. That's really a book on the transition of a family business. And my, and my big message there is, is, is that it, it's giving the business owner permission to take care of themselves first. We know from study after study that the most trusted advisor in the United States, it's, it's the attorney. In Canada, it's the accountant. It's very interesting, the difference. Uh, and then it's reversed. Number two in the U.S. is the accountant, and number two in Canada is the attorney. Um, but in both cases, if you're the uh, the accountant or the attorney and your business owner client says that he wants to sell, what happens and does sell? What happens to the file? Yep, you're going to lose the fees, typically. You're done. So we, you know, we have business owners in both countries turning to trusted advisors from two professions that largely take instruction, but they're in a position of proferring strategic or tactical advice. And, um, and so what they hear is, well, you know, I'm the accountant, so if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So what you say is, you know, I'm not going to, you know, don't, um, don't sell this business. I mean, you've got your son working in the business. Why don't we do a, an estate freeze? We, you know, we could, this is really tax efficient. We can get some, some common shares into, uh, into the hands of your kids. They're, uh, they're the gross shares. It'll be, able to, it'll be, really, it'll be an awesome uh, tax maneuver. And you see how the, all of a sudden the conversation switches away from what should I do to how can we save tax. And, it's, uh, and it all sounds very plausible and the right thing to do. Of course, what is overlooked is whether or not that child is prepared to, uh, to run that business. The, uh, are, are they passionate about that business? Do they have the skills? Or will that child take that business and nuke the family's largest asset? The plan is always that mom and dad will step out of the operations of the business while the second generation takes over them and the management, the operations of the business, and draw a salary until the day they die. What's different now, Noah, is that uh, we have business owners in, for the first generation living vastly longer than their their own parents. So this idea that you know you're going to uh, hand over the operations of the business at 65 and then kind of you know die at 72, 73, which is a typical uh, mortality rate for men. Uh, so you'd, there'd be like a five to seven year gap where you'd be drawing a salary but not leading the business, and then on death the business equity would transfer via gifting. Well, what happens now is, uh, of course, you know, business owners are living longer. They're still kind of semi-retiring at 65, some a little bit later in their early 70s, handing the business over. But, you know, now they have a heart attack, they get a stent, and they live 25 more years. Like, they're, they're, the business owner isn't dying. And so now we have business owners who still have voting control who are in their 90s. Their kids are in their 70s. Their grandchildren are in the operations of the business. you got three generations alive and working in the business, working shoulder to shoulder to shoulder. Two generations was a full contact sport. Three is just off the map. Like the complexity and the... Um, well, the complexity, complex is just the best word to describe it. The family dynamics become complicated. The, the financial arrangements and promises and expectations of three generations are often not in alignment. And really, you set the stage for a, for a business that, that's going to wobble. So every family's business is dealing with the transition of business. The second book is really a response to my audiences who had great difficulty with the thesis of the first book. So where 
whereas the first book is saying, don't gift your business, gift your wealth. You know, it took, I think, uh, oh, not very long, certainly in the first couple of paid speeches for audience members to say, you know, uh, you know, great theory, Tom, but I've got a business that's worth $10 million. I've only got two kids. Are you suggesting that I leave $5 million for each of my kids? That's too much money. I, I have a real problem with that. I, I've got some real issues with, um, you know, if, if they have a divorce. So all of a sudden, I, you know, was having to explain or at least provide some insights on that second question. How much is enough? When do you tell your children about uh, what they will inherit, if anything? And um, and so that's what the second book really offers. And that, again, has been based on my own family experience. Uh, I've been attending family meetings uh, since the time I was five, being born into a, a business-owning family. Um, we've just had a lot of transparency around the subject of money. And so what the book uh, Willing Wisdom does is it, it offers seven questions to start conversations in the family, not just about writing a will, but uh, relying on your beneficiaries to inform the writing of that will. In other words, uh, I'm trying to recast what a will is. It's not a document that simply divides asset on death. It's a document that I think that can bring families together and uh, both parties can learn and collaborate and figure out what the true purpose of that wealth would be, not just in the future when someone is dead, but today while someone is alive. So, um, so this idea of writing writing a collaborative will is really the the really interesting part of this of this book. A collaborative will, writing it and then not holding the will secret, but sharing it with your intended beneficiaries. 125 million American adults. 120. Wrap your mind around that number. 125 million American adults have no will. Not bad wills, not ill-conceived wills, just nothing. And I'll tell you, um, these aren't just uneducated people or people without means. These are academics. These are lawyers. These are talented people who have worked and saved and then make no effort, have no confidence in the next generation, be it their family, their community, or their friends, to take their wealth and continue their work because no one knows what it is that was important. So the, uh, for the 125 million Americans that do have wills, it's roughly 50%, uh, most of those people will find out in a cold, austere uh, lawyer's office what they're going to get after a parent has died. And that just strikes me as just culturally, it strikes me as being odd um, because we know that the great dynastic families, the ones who are able to continue their wealth generation from generation to generation, have this uncanny ability to talk openly, frequently, and honestly about money. It's not taboo. It's culturally a part of their family uh, it's uh, it, it's like breathing for for the uber wealthy. This is what they do. I'm trying to I'm trying to extend that that talent and that that ability to make it in reach for the average uh, Canadian American family. I think everyone is capable of these conversations, and I think that's where the real the real value of both these books lies: starting conversations in the family so that wealth can be made and protected, and and and. And, and to do that collaboratively. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a little bit of a summary for both books. So tell me if, if the uh, messages to encourage families to be open and communicate and do it frequently um, 
you know, which certainly resonates with me. It's a message that I try and give to my clients. Uh, what would be your recommendations for families to get started? And maybe you could take a couple of either case studies or use a family with adult children and, and you know, toddler grandchildren or use a family with, you know, maybe teenage children. And how would you recommend they get started having these discussions? Well, I think uh, for a lot of families where this where this idea of a, of communication is it feels awkward. I would really recommend that they that they reach out to uh, to an advisor uh, for for some help. And really, what I'm envisioning is a family meeting that's facilitated by a trusted advisor. And I and, and by the way, that's no, that's not me. I'm a I'm a speaker and an author, so I I don't do any family business consulting or family consulting whatsoever. And quite frankly, um, the best person to hold those meetings are the people that you have a relationship uh, relationship already. And in reverse, I talk to and train a lot of advisors and encourage them to take their top 10 clients and to invite uh, themselves to be that facilitator, to actively go out and and solicit this role of um, um, confidant, uh, consigliere. I mean, there's European phrases to describe the role that I'm that I'm kind of um, explaining. This role where um, someone takes some advisor takes a lead role in managing just not their client's wealth, but the, but takes a multi generational approach to this. We, we know that 95% of inherited money will move to a new advisor, primarily because the kids, uh, they don't even know who their parents' advisors are. They have no relationship. They have No one has ever made an effort of uh, bringing the generations together and having this cross-generational conversation about, about what money can accomplish, not over 20 years, but over 200 years. And that is um, that is that is a conversation that has to happen, especially because we have a generation that has generated more wealth than any other generation in the history of the planet. It's called the baby boomers, born after 1946, and the first boomers started to turn 65 in 2011. I mean, uh, every day 10,000 people turn 65 in the U.S. It's a staggering number, and the urgency that I'm trying to create around this subject is is um, you know it's it's an uphill battle. People continue to who want to treat their will uh, in a secret way. I um, I had a really interesting call from a from a, um, a business owner who um, a business owner's kids actually. So both parents had died recently and did what so many business owners do, and that is they they left equal number of shares in the family business to uh, the three kids. Only one kid was in the business. So. Uh, what has happened is that uh, the two kids that were outside the business have quit their jobs and joined the family business, and, and not because they're really excited about uh, this business, and it's a pretty kind of mundane business. Um, it's a distribution business, and uh, so now we have uh, three equal partners. Um, the two that have joined have joined largely because they want to be have a front row seat and see what's going on financially in the business. They want to make sure that there's no malfeasance and that the son in the business isn't going to abscond with uh, some kind of special bonus or dividend. And um, and so it's what was described to me is is really quite dysfunctional. And you know the concern that one of the one of the siblings has is that the business will will in fact fail in less than a year. So the trajectory that, that that they were on when the parents were alive is is very different than what, what the path that they're heading on now. 
very alarming, but but very typical in the family business space where parents want to treat their kids fairly. It seems so right that that they treat each kid equally. And of course, what I say to business owners when they actually are alive, I ask them, are you in business with your brothers and sisters? Of course, the answer is almost always no. And, uh, and then I ask them why they think uh, it would be an amazing idea to put their own kids in business together. And of course, there's usually silence. And for advisors who are listening in on this call, that's usually where the great stuff is. That's usually those awkward moments filled with silence is where the business owner is having to reconcile the reality with this kind of what I call a kind of a fantasized, uh, fantasy idea of what, of what a business transition looks like. For the business owner who views their business as their legacy, I, I offer a very challenging message. What I'm saying, in fact, is quite the opposite. The legacy is not the business. The legacy is the family. And uh, one only needs to read, uh, you know, um, Niall Ferguson's book, The Ascent of Money. There's some great books, uh, Sean Peter's book, uh, written in 1942, Socialism, Capitalism, Democracy. Lots of great books that have clearly, clearly documented just how frail uh, corporations are and how temporary. And the failure rate of the 100 largest firms in America in the year 1900, Noah, only 16 were still in business in the year 2000, according to Fortune magazine. Businesses don't last, and yet no one wants to talk about this. In fact, everyone wants to consult and write and think uh, that that the job of an entrepreneur and uh, business leader is to keep fixing the business and building them to last, built to last. I mean, how many copies of that book were sold? Because it taps into this emotional idea that a business owner's job is to build a business to last. Well, quite frankly, I don't get it. Now, it doesn't line up with my own personal narrative, doesn't it, right? I've already told you that I come from five generations of business founders, operators, and sellers. We start them, we run them, we sell them. We sell them before they hit their freshness date. So that's, that's, if you look at the history of commerce, that's what the dynastic families have done. They've found a way to find the end of their business before the end finds them. It's not easy. In fact, it can be, we can turn it into an emotional thing, like most business owners do, or you can look at business as something that you're passionate about. There's a very fine line between emotion and passion, and many entrepreneurs especially, especially ones who have built successful businesses, lose sight of that emotion. They let their passion devolve into emotion, and of course, the end result is devastating. Um, particularly if you look at the bankruptcies that have uh, befallen some of the biggest and best corporations. Um, in fact, if I was giving my message, the very message that I'm sharing with your listeners today, to Wall Street in 2002 and talk about uh, how Lehman Brothers one day won't exist. If I were to suggest in 2002 that one day the greatest investment bank in the history of civilization, the most successful by any measure, would one day no longer exist, they would have laughed me off the podium, driven me to LaGuardia, and not paid my speaker's fee. It would have been an outrageous, audacious idea. And yet here we are, a $691 billion failure, the biggest failure in the history of mankind. And, uh, and, and I asked my audience to name that company, and most can't, because our cultural bias, our cultural slant is that we do not talk about business failure. 
We don't want to think about it. We don't want to acknowledge it. We sure as heck don't want to study it and understand it. What we want to do is think and read about the entrepreneur who came over from Italy with $10 in his pocket and built a billion-dollar company. We love success. We love reading about success. We don't like starting with the end in mind, business failures or business exits, as a way, as a, as a thought process to grow businesses. And that's what both these books are trying to do. So walk me through some of your like top three pieces of advice that you'd have for an owner that's listening, that's contemplating their own exit, and they're wondering, you know, where should they get started? What are some of the bits of advice you'd have? Maybe you could give me a top three list. Top three list would be for the business owner, uh, very simply, one. Uh, let's start at the end. Let's start what I just suggested. Start with the end in mind. You've just been hit by a bus. Um, how's your business doing now? What's it look like? Um, where do the shares go? Do you have a shareholder agreement? Do the shares do what most, uh, what they typically do? Do they roll to your surviving spouse? Does she have a key to your office? Has she ever chaired, chaired a, a board meeting? Does she know your suppliers, your customers? I mean, really, what does it look like? You've left the planet. Um, you know, some business owners, quite frankly, when I do this, uh, not a lot, but some, will answer the question this way. When I'm gone, I don't care. <laughs> it's actually an honest answer. And, uh, you, you know, it's kind of an interesting answer. But really what those people are, are saying is that their, their family is just not all that important to them. They're, they're running their business because they get a charge out of it. They like making money. They think that the business is their legacy, and that's kind of their answer. So I, my first piece of advice would be I mean, really think about what your business looks like when you're not here and how can you prep that business? How can you get your will, your shareholder agreement so that they say the same thing? I mean, often we have shareholder agreements that say uh, minority shareholders will have first rights refusal on the shares if, uh, if something were to happen to the controlling shareholder. And then they have a will that says my shares will transfer to my surviving spouse. You have two documents that say two completely different things. And that's often as a result of the company having one attorney and then, you know, uh, an individual having, uh, you know, a personal attorney for real estate and other personal matters. So they have two documents written by two different attorneys that say two different things that create enormous complexity and cost and chaos when a business owner is either incapacitated or dead. And uh, so, okay, so the first one is just get your, get your house in order and start with the end in mind. Second tip for the business owner is... Understand that your, your your business isn't your legacy. Just kind of get over that and understand what your business is. It's the same thing that it was the very first day that you left that safe job, went to the bank, borrowed money, took risks to start something. Did you Were you thinking about building legacy then, or were you really thinking about making money? And most business owners laugh at that point. They, they confess. They, they, the reason they took risk is they wanted to make money. It's only 20, 30, 40 years down the road after they've made money that they start to import and ascribe all sorts of other intangible and soft criteria to their business. It's my community. It's my family. It's my friends. It's all these other things. And, and part of my message is to these business owners, you're only saying that because you're successful. If your business wobbles and it gets kicked to special loans or goes into you know, creditor protection, there is no line on that balance sheet that says love, family, protection, and some kind of number you know, beside that. I mean, you cannot monetize those things. It's wonderful. It's nice that you've built a business that, uh, that you feel uh, you know, kind of represents these, these communities. 
but it's not. It just simply isn't. Your business is not your legacy. Your business is an instrument of wealth creation, full stop. It makes money or it loses money. Noah, you know this. Uh, businesses don't go sideways. Not even with malfeasance could you could you manipulate and engineer a balance sheet to be exactly the same from one year to the next. They're, they're moving. These businesses are organic. They're alive. And in fact, a lawyer will tell you they actually are a, a person. In the eyes of a law, a corporation is a person. It, uh, it, you know, it has a, it has a birth, an incorporation date. It has a life. You operate it. And like every living thing, Noah, what does it have at the end? Unfortunately, a death. It does have a death. Now, uh, what do we think about death? We think about the sale of a business as a kind of the high water mark of failure, right? You so who sells businesses? Uh, our popular culture says you only sell a business when it's failing, when it's wobbling. I mean, why would you sell a business that's growing and turning out lots of income and growing and it's full of optimism? So most people uh, don't. We sold our business in February of 2007 at a terrific multiple about 15 minutes before the capital markets went crazy, before all sorts of businesses in our space were destroyed. We sold at an amazing time um, at, a, at an amazing price under favorable terms. And I'm walking. We're the largest employer in our town. And I'm walking down our main street, and I'm coming out of our local bank, and, I, and an acquaintance stops me. And he says, obviously, I, I read the newspaper. We're on the front page, you know, reporting the story of the sale of our business. And the very first question out of his mouth is, are you going to be okay? Are you going to be okay? So the presumption in that, in that question is something must have been wrong. Um, you must have been under duress. Something must have been broken. I mean, you don't sell businesses that are, that are running great. You sell them when they're broken. And I thought, you know, I, I have to write this book. I'll bet you there are millions of business owners who feel like the sale of a business is some kind of public declaration of their failure. When, in fact, what I'm trying to do is shift the discussion and say, no, this is the high watermark. This is the moment of perfection when you've taken your entire life's work and energy and monetized it. It's for the sake of a number? No. So that you create wealth so that you can move on to the next phase, the most exciting phase of a business owner's life, and that is where they deploy their social and intellectual capital, backed by their financial capital to achieve something of significance. And that is, um, boy, I'll tell you, when, when a business owner hears that, it's often for the very, very first time. And it's, a, it's an amazing moment to see a world of opportunity and to shift the, uh, the kind of the cultural yard mark and say, oh, my God, there's this other thing out there for business owners to contemplate. The sale is not the failure. It is the moment of perfection. That's a great message. Um, so maybe before we have to end our podcast, you could share a couple of stories that you think would be valuable for our listeners. Um, maybe something someone did right or something someone did wrong and what the lessons were that came out of it for you. You know, one of the, one of the uh, questions I get in from my audience is, you know, I don't want to sell necessarily for the highest price. I want to... Um, I want to make sure that the people who buy my business are really going to pay homage to the people, the culture, and um, and and it's a huge distraction. And and my message to those folks is, look, you know, business is about control. Right now, Mr. Business Owner, you've got it. You risked your capital. You've got voting control. It's yours. That's that's one of the great things about business ownership. You get to make decisions because you took the risk. I think so many business owners um, will make um, 
not as good a decisions as they could, thinking that business owners, buyers of their business will um, kind of take care of people or continue values or legacies or compensation plans or commitments to uh, charities. Or I mean, I could go on and on and on about how business owners obsess about the new owners replicating their, in effect, their dream of what the business ought to be. And it's, and it's really naive. Um, the business owner should really focus on getting the best price. And when I say a best price, I mean the best price at a moment in time. In fact, this would be my, my second point. Um, I spoke to a, a business owner this morning, in fact, who, um, who uh, read the book, who was very, uh, very excited about the message in every family's business, wanted to sell, but not right now because he thought that he had missed the peak of, uh, of his enterprise value. And my message to this gentleman was, I asked him a question. I said, have you ever bought and sold a stock on the public markets and sold it at a loss or sold it for, you know, maybe not at the, you know, you missed the peak of the value. He said, oh, all the time. And I said, well, what's your, what's your, what's your family business? It's one stock. It's no different that it's a, a privately held, uh, closely traded, narrowly traded business does not mean it's not a stock. It's a stock. And the likelihood of you selling that business at its absolute peak value is beside the point. The point is, if now is a good time for you to take some chips off the table to monetize uh, your business at a fair price, given market circumstances, where your business is in its, in, its, um, in its life cycle, then do your deal and feel good about it. Don't obsess about not getting the, the top price. I, I, I'll tell you some of the saddest stories and emails I've ever had were people who missed the peak of their value of their business and, and didn't exit, and then, and then ground that, that stock to zero. They rode that pony right into the ground because they missed the top. And uh, I'll tell you, that's just the saddest thing because the, you know the business founder loses his relationship with his kids if they're working in the business because there's often a lot of blame that's as to why the business failed. Um, there is, you know, um, broken relationships, broken financial dreams, broken retirement plans, and that is sad. When in fact, had the family just picked a good price, if the kids didn't want to buy the business, it would have just spent, simply been sold to someone else. And so, I, it, my last point would be, just you know, do the best deal you can. Do it. The best deal will be the one that a family business can work on collaboratively. So that kids, if they're not passionate to be owners, then they can maybe good good employees. Or they leave the family business altogether and they take their inheritance, the second book, and and then go off and do something that they're really switched on about and, and talented. That's where they'll find their success. So giving kids space to succeed and become the people they were meant to be. Those are the messages in both books. Terrific. Well, great. Anything else you'd like to leave with our audience before we say goodbye for today? Um, you know, uh, I have to say, uh, no. Both uh, both books are are conversational. Uh, the first book, they're, they're both books are written as stories. The first book is two guys on a plane flying to Barbados. A young guy who is a in a family business, an old guy, a founder, and the whole book zips along. It's about an hour and a half read. It zips along, and uh, they get into the scotch on the plane, and they confess and share what worked and largely what didn't work in their family businesses, and confess. 
and and it's a real kind of everyone who reads this book finds themselves in the stories that are told and i think that's really what i'm trying to do is is have people kind of step out of their own skin and see just how common uh, the themes are across a family businesses whether you're big or small or manufacturing or retail or finance the themes are amazingly consistent um and the second book is uh, is not two guys on a plane, but this time it's uh, three people in a bar in Las Vegas. And uh, one is an estate planning attorney who uh, does wills for the stars, movie stars. He's uh, he's always a guy in the media. He's a, he's a speaker. Another speaker. They're at a convention, and uh, the other the other uh, person in the bar is a, is a psychotherapist and has done lots of work with families with significant wealth. And the third person is a thinly disguised version of me. He's a, he's a speaker, and the three of us have this conversation about why the heck 125 million people in America don't have wills and, and what it's going to take to get people to understand uh, what a will is uh, beyond just a document that divides money and real estate. How can we get uh, you know Americans and Canadians switched onto this idea that the greatest conversation of their life is just waiting around the corner? And it's not when you're 92 years old lying in bed and uh, and and the lawyer is called hurriedly to your bedside to do a will. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a family sitting on a back deck around a barbecue. We're talking about the most obvious and predictable thing in life, and that's our own death. And to be able to do that and start that conversation and give advisors the tools, the questions to get those conversations started, quite frankly, no, that's, that's a, for me, that's a good day in the office. That's great. So, Tom, if our readers, uh, I'm sorry, if our listeners would like to read your book, what's the best way for them to reach out and find it? So, uh, so the, the quickest and fastest and uh, most uh, cost-effective way of purchasing the book is right off the website. So books uh, ship the same day they're ordered. There's bulk pricing for advisors who want to buy in bulk and hand out to their uh, to their clients. Uh, and the, the web uh, sites are the titles of the book. So everyfamiliesbusiness.com is the first book. That's how to transfer a business. And the second book is willingwisdom.com. And that's how to transfer wealth. So I would read them in that order as well. Every family's business first, willing wisdom second. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks to our listeners. A a reminder to everyone listening, if you could rate us on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate it. Give us your feedback. And also, uh, I have an offer for our listeners. I have a new book coming out called Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. If any of you would like a pre-pressed copy, I'd be happy to send it to you if you'd agree to write a review on Amazon when it's finally published. So if you'd like to take me up on that offer, just send me an email, noah at freedomadv.com. Check the Investopedia if you need a, a link to that. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we hope you join us next time. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. 
Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.